Hey there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode number 590 of the Duke Basketball Roundup. We are here for part two of our Duke UNC preview. Of course, on the last episode, we had the legendary Jay Billis, and it was a terrific interview. So go back and check that out before you start this show. But if you already made it here, you're in the right spot because, again, Jason and I are here. We are going to talk about more Duke UNC madness as we get ready for the tip Saturday night, 6.30 p.m. at the Dean Dome. First off, I am down the line. I'm your host for this episode. I mentioned Jason Evans is still with me. Jason, how you doing? I'm doing great, Donald. I am I'm super excited to talk about Carolina. I mean, look, they are our rival. They're far and away our biggest rival. I know there are schools out there that over the years have pretended to be a big Duke rival. No, I'm sorry. There's no one but Carolina. <laughs> uh, but more than that, this is just a super important game. If you look at the ACC standings, the team that wins this game will be first in the ACC standings. First place. We're, we're yep. already halfway through the season. Being in first is a good thing. And it's a top 10 matchup. Carolina's number three. Duke is number seven. These are hugely important games. This is probably the most important game that either Duke or UNC will play all year until we face each other again at the end, at the beginning of March. <laughs> and Jason, I think that's a that's an important point to hammer home is that a lot of people, you know, even with Jay, we talked about how the season hasn't lived up quite to our expectations. We had super high expectations for this team, and a lot of people have lamented at individual performances, and also just the team in general. But yes, we're standing here in the beginning of February with a chance to be in first place in the Atlantic Coast Conference once again. Like, that is a huge deal, and to do it by taking a road victory, you know, at the expense of our rivals would be even sweeter. Again, UNC is undefeated at the Dean Dome, 9-0 so far this year. That is, a, I mean, the, the fact, again, we we talk about them being a wine and cheese crowd and the, the Dome not being, you know, the 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 strongest, toughest place to play, but they've made it into a place that is very tough to play. And again, a lot of people are doing well at home. Very few ranked teams are doing well on the road. Let's start off, Jason, by talking about, again, the record, how they've gotten to this point. UNC 17-4 and four on the year, 9-1 and one in the ACC. We'll talk about that one in just a second. They are, as I mentioned, they're, as you mentioned, the number three in the in the country in the AP poll, but they're number seven in Kimpom, number nine in the net, and they have a you know a myriad of great wins: four quad one wins, five quad two wins. Their biggest wins: Tennessee, Oklahoma, Clemson, and Wake Forest. Those are your quad one wins that they have had so far this year. By they way, started out four zero. That Tennessee yeah, win, go ahead. That Tennessee win is huge. Uh, at the time, it didn't look maybe quite as good as it does now in retrospect. But Tennessee is a is an outstanding, outstanding basketball club, and for Carolina to beat them. And by the way, it was at Carolina, and that shows you how difficult this Carolina team is to beat in Chapel Hill during the ACC SEC Challenge as well. And that was a track meet, one hundred to ninety two, the final score there. There's very few teams that have scored anywhere close to seventy points against UNC, much less 92. So a lot of people, when we're looking at that game, we look to see what 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 could you know Tennessee have done to help us in this game. It, it was just a track meet, which is something that UNC does not like to do. They started out 4-0. They lost to Villanova in the semifinals of the Battle for Atlantis, but then ended up finishing third by beating Arkansas just before we played them, uh, Arkansas, down at the Bud Walton Arena. Then, to again, you mentioned the game at home to Tennessee. Florida State, they won before losing two straight to UConn and Kentucky. I believe the Kentucky game was like a semi-neutral game or something like that. But both both those games were on neutral floors. Yeah. 
neutral floors. Yes. And they no, did and rattle. By the way, no, no shame in losing either of those games. Two very two teams that are going to be, along with Duke and UNC, contending for the national title in all pro, in all likelihood. Oh, absolutely. And of course, Jay mentioned UConn quite a bit as one of those teams that could be the elite team uh, of this bunch in college basketball this season. So no shame in that. Again, they rattled off 10 straight after that, including eight in the ACC. But then, Jason, as 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 you were landing back from Argentina, <laughs> they lost to Georgia Tech 74-73 on Tuesday night in Atlanta. Now, that means that this is a, you know, much bigger game of course how, how do you make this game even bigger for one side but for UNC it could be a bit bigger because of the fact that yes now they are nine and one in the ACC now they have a chance to lose the first the top spot to Duke if they lose on Saturday at home this is a really big game now and of course you know Duke we have had similar success I think we're what 10 and one in this stretch of course the pit game being the lone loss but we're still in a position to take first place away from from uh, from UNC. So I, I turn it to you. I know we're going to talk about the metrics, but as we look into this, let's start with the Georgia Tech game. What about that? And you can use that to lead into the metrics. What about that game did you see where UNC faltered and give some, maybe some optimism for Duke fans of what we can do to exploit them on Saturday? Well, so first of all, it's worth noting that game really came out of the blue. Uh, that That was one of the most shocking losses I think that I've seen all year because Carolina had been, it wasn't just Donald that they were nine and zero in the ACC. They had been taking care of teams really easily. Like they won at Clemson by ten points. They 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 beat Syracuse by like almost forty. They were just you know running the doors. They're winning road games by by ten plus points left and right. And you you know it looked like this Carolina team. You know they were ranked number three. You were sort of like, why are they not number one? And then they went down to Georgia Tech. And a lot of what happened in that game was. Carolina couldn't put the, you know, they couldn't throw the ball in the ocean. I mean, they only hit 40% of their two-point shots. They only hit um, 28% of their three-point shots. They couldn't even make free throws. They were just nine of 17 on free throws. And when that happens, now it's not that Georgia Tech was shooting lights out. It was not a case like when Georgia Tech beat Duke, remember Tech shot like almost 60% from three. This was not mm -hmm. a game like that. Um, Tech, Tech only hit 39, 40% of their two-point shots. So it wasn't that Tech shot like crazy. But it was that Carolina, which is a team that really they, – they need to shoot well because they're, they're not a team that generate a lot of points in other kind of ways. They, they just they, – they, they struggled mightily shooting from, from the field and especially from long range and, and the free throw line. And look, it's a really close game, and it's just one of those games that you, you end up losing on the road. The shocking thing to me about it was the Bay and Dongo, who's the Georgia Tech freshman who – Maybe the, I don't know if he's not, the, he's not the front runner, but he's, he's up there for ACC freshman of the year. He has been Georgia mm -hmm. Tech's best player for the most part. He destroyed, just destroyed Duke in both games in the pick and roll. He got hurt and he only played five minutes against Carolina. If you told me that Georgia Tech was going to beat North Carolina without Bay and Dongo playing only five minutes, I would have been like, what, what planet are you on? But they, they made it work. And you know, Kyle Sturdivant had like a, a monster game. Uh, and, and that's what helped Georgia Tech to the win. I don't know that there's a lot that we should take from that and transpose onto the onto the Duke game. We have a body of record with Carolina that is that is pretty old at this point. You know, they've played more than 20 games on the season. And I don't know that I should go, oh, this one game that really looks like an outlier. I don't know that I should rely on that one too much. It's interesting, though, because, again, 
it didn't feel like a trap game, right? Like we had a game on Monday night at Virginia Tech. That felt like a game, again, entering that game, a lot of people were like, that's always a place that we play terribly at. That's a game that you can circle as a loss and maybe we have enough time to get everything together. But I don't know if it was a trap game for UNC or if they felt like they, if it felt like they were looking ahead, but it just seemed like they were off in so many different ways during that game. But as you mentioned, it is an outlier when you look at the whole body of work that they've produced this season. Again, some really good wins or some really tough teams. And just, again, sometimes even the teams that they, that, aren't as good they're blowing the doors off so let me turn to you of course offensive and defensive metrics start with the defense because it feels like it unlike previous years and as jay alluded to when we interviewed him the defense has been pacing the offense as opposed to vice versa which is not like a do uh, a unc team uh that is this good yeah all right so as as we've mentioned they're number seven in ken pomeroy's metrics they have the 19th best offense and the fourth best defense. I, I looked. The last time a UNC team was ranked in the top 10 on defense in Ken Pomeroy's metrics was 2011. <laughs> it's a long time ago. You know you know why they were so good that year? I'm going to say a couple names. And you're going to be like, wait, who? Yeah, they were good on defense in 2011 because Tyler Zeller and John Henson were blocking lots of shots and not committing mm-hmm. any fouls. That's why UNC was so good on defense back then. The fact that I'm talking about Tyler Zeller and John Henson tells you how old, how long it has been since Carolina has been this good on defense. And if we're going to start with the D, like you asked, there's a stat, an advanced stat that jumped out to me that I was just like, wow, it just jumped off the page. Carolina only allows assists on 40% of opposing baskets. Most teams, the national average is just a little bit above 50%. And you may think, oh, 40, 50, you know, it's not that. That's a huge and difference. Duke, and Duke is at like 55 to 60%. That like yeah. they're trending closer to 60% than 50. Yeah, but there's a huge difference <laughs> when you're talking about an entire season and the entire country in being and having something that teams succeed at 50% of the time and only succeeding 40% of the time against you. They are top 10 in the country at opponents assist percentage. They stay home on defense. They don't give up easy passes for buckets. They are absolutely elite. I mean, Carolina is elite at defending the three-point line. Their opponents hit less than 30% from three. Duke is a really good three-point shooting team. I mentioned on the podcast with Jay that Duke shoots better than 38% from three. We haven't had a Duke team do that in a long time. And this is where Carolina's defense may be the best at anything. They are elite at defending that three-point line. They do a really nice job of contesting two-point shot as well. They only give up 45% on two-point shots. The national average is over 50%. Again, Carolina just way, like, by a chunk better than the national average at this aspect of playing defense. Uh, As Jay Billis mentioned when we spoke to him on the podcast yesterday, they're one of the top 25 teams in the country at defensive rebounding. They do not give up offensive rebounds very much at all. They don't foul a lot. They don't turn it over so you can race the other direction. It's just hard to get easy points against them. And that's what has made them into the fourth best defense in all of college basketball. Let's talk a little bit about what they, you know, what they're like on offense and what the rest of the game is like. Carolina is one of these teams that plays at a very weird tempo, Donald. This is really interesting to me. They are the 28th fastest team in the country on offense. Like when they get the ball, they're pushing it. They're trying they are to get scooting. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're moving. On defense, they're 217th fastest. So this is a model of a team that forces you 
to grind against them, that you got to work the ball way late in the shot clock. You got to move it around a lot. You're just not able to get easy shots against them. And that's what contributes to this crazy disparagement on tempo. Most teams, if they play fast at one end, play fast at the other end. Carolina is one of those rare teams, fast on offense, really slow on defense. They are a super old team. Sixth most experienced team in all of the land, uh, according to Ken Pomeroy. And remember, they play a lot of Elliot Cadeau, who's just a freshman. But aside from him, man, the guys who are out there, they are they're old dudes. <laughs> they have nine guys who play like a handful of minutes for them who are basically in the rotation. And five of those nine guys have been in school for four or five years. Yeah, they got multiple guys who've been in school, you know, fifth-year seniors. This is just a super, super experienced team. That is going to be – that's one of the things that concerns me the most about Duke playing them. I think one of the reasons they're so good on defense, even though they brought in a lot of transfers, this is not a team that has played together a ton. But these guys all – they've been doing it for so long. Cormac Ryan, Harrison Ingram. You know, these guys came in – Jalen Withers. They came in, they integrate really quickly into Carolina – because they're super experienced college basketball players. And frankly, that is not what Duke is. And that's going to be a major hurdle for us. There's nothing they do on offense, Donald, that really jumps off the page too much. They're, like they're not in the top 25 at anything in the advanced metrics. But the other side of that is there's nothing that they're really bad at. You know, they're, they're good from three. They hit 35% of their three-pointers. They're a pretty good offensive rebounding team, like ranked in the top 60 offensive rebounding. Top 40 at not allowing turnovers. They do a whole lot of stuff well. They don't do anything super great. But maybe that's one of the reasons why it's sort of hard to stop them. There's nothing you can focus on. You can't, there are a lot of teams where you go, you know what? If we stop that guy, if we stop this offensive rebounding, if we force them into turnovers, oh, that's something we can do against them. I looked and I've watched Carolina. I don't know that there's anything that I go, oh, that's the one key to stopping them. Hey, I, I, actually, you know, the one key to stopping them is stop R.J. Davis. Good luck with that. <laughs> so, I mean, that's basically my I, – I, I, they are a two, super tough team to figure out how you're going to beat them. Um, this is and, – and the fact that this is on the road, I'm as pessimistic, pessimistic as I've been for any Duke game all year. Well, it's interesting. This is – a strong team. We're a strong team. Both teams coming in, you know, again, UNC maybe not playing as well. Duke playing a little bit better coming off of that victory against Virginia Tech. There's a couple of things on offense that I was looking at that I think was interesting. One is they don't take a lot of threes. You mentioned they have 35% from threes. We'll talk about some of the guys yeah. that actually shoot threes, but there's only three guys really that take the bulk of those threes. And then on two-pointers, yeah, they're 50% and 50% of their points comes from inside the three-point line, but it also feels like that ball is in the hands of just a few guys. Yeah, they got guys coming off the bench, but they really rely on their starters to set the tempo. You mentioned R.J. Davis. We'll talk a lot about him at, in a little bit, but he's kind of the engine that makes everyone go, and everyone kind of, they kind of live or die by how he performs. And I think the other thing is, and we, you know, Jay mentioned this, and we haven't really talked about it is they rebound super well. Like they just, a lot of their points come from second, third, even fourth chance uh, opportunities because they're good at, you know, getting inside the paint, getting to the rim. And if they miss it, they grab it, they put it back up, they get it, they put it back up, they get it, put it back up until they get the ball in the hoop or you grab the ball somehow. And, and that's going to be a key. Yeah. Now there's, there's one guy 
doing that that folks may not be aware of what a great offensive rebounder he is. But but uh, we're going to take a break before we talk about the guys, right? Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. But again, they don't turn the ball over that much. They're great at offensive rebounding. I think on defense, the one thing, as I, as I alluded to, is they keep teams just not shooting well, right? Six teams this season have scored more than 70 points in them. Six. You mentioned they played about 20 games. Four teams have not managed to break 60. And last year, if you mentioned, you know, uh, we won those games 63 to 57 and 62 to 57. They're two very similar games where there are very low scoring, two of the most low scoring games in the history of this rivalry. I don't expect it to be that this year because, yeah, they may have improved a little bit on offense, but they I feel like they've really excelled on defense. And this is going to be a game where if we don't shoot well, if Duke doesn't shoot well, their defense is going to carry into their offense. You mentioned the tempo disparities. I think that's the reason why. They want to break you down mentally by having a long grinded out game when you're on offense. And then when they, and then when they get the rebound, they go down and score quickly so that you have to come back and spend 30 seconds thinking about what just happened. Hey, my last thing here, before we take this break and we get to the individual players, I got two numbers, 35 and 50. I think if Duke can hit 35% of their threes, again, again, we average better than 38%, but Carolina holds teams below 30. If Duke hits better than 35% of their three pointers, and hits better than 50% of their two-pointers. And again, Duke averages about 53 54%. If we are close to our averages on two-pointers and three-pointers, I think we make this game very difficult for Carolina because they rely so much, as you indicated, uh, as we spoke about, they rely so much on their ability to make teams take difficult shots and force teams into situations where they're hitting a low percentage. If Duke can be close to our regular percentage at those two areas, again, 35 and 50, I think, are the key. That's how the Devils walk away with a win. So let's leave it here for just a second. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we talk about the players you need to look out for on UNC. And again, we summarize with what does Duke need to do to win this ball game? More after this. This episode of the Duke Basketball Roundup is sponsored by BetterHelp. Springtime is the season that's supposed to feel like a new beginning. We have better weather, and it feels like everyone gains a boost of energy. However, for many, leaving winter behind doesn't always mean that their mood lightens up with the extra sunlight. We all carry around stress, and that stress can build as more events get added to your calendar. That's certainly true, Donald. And with the amount of social gatherings increasing with the improving weather and more daylight, there's more pressure to be on when you're interacting with family, friends, coworkers, even strangers, even when stress has you a little bit down. And for some, getting advice from a therapist can help you tackle some of that stress without affecting you or the people you care about. That's what BetterHelp is all about. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be therapy that's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a professional licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime you want. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and find your social sweet spot. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Duke Roundup today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Duke Roundup.
All right, we are back, and we turn our attention to the individual players that will be taking the floor for both UNC and Duke on Saturday night when we take uh, when we have this big game. Jason, we have to start with the guy who is arguably you know one of the candidates for National Player of the Year right now. He's at an All American level. We, we hate it, but that's the reality right now. R.J. Davis. He's averaging t- over twenty one points a game. He's just all over the map. He's shooting forty percent from three. He's shooting 92% from the line. These are these are Steph Curry numbers. We don't like when Steph Curry numbers are being shot by people wearing Tar Heel blue, but here we are. Jason, talk a little bit. Let's start with the individual players. Talk about what R.J. Davis brings to the Tar Heel offense and, more importantly, what he brings to the defense. R.J. Davis is a guy – I mean, look, he's been there. This is his fourth year. He is, a, he is being used by Carolina more this year than at any point in the past. He's taking – more than 30% of the shots when he's on the floor. The ball is in his hands all the time. And remarkably, the fact that he doesn't have an elite backcourt mate anymore in Caleb Love has made him even better. It's sort of like they said to him, RJ, we need you to pick up more of the slack. And he had no trouble at all doing that. It sort of makes you wonder a little bit if maybe, you know, pairing great players together isn't isn't the best formula. Maybe if you have a great player, you surround him with compliments as to, as opposed to surrounding him with other great players, because this year when they really, if you look at the rest of their team, I mean, Armando Baycott is what Armando Baycott is. Uh, We've seen, this is his fifth year. And arguably I feel like Armando Baycott has been like the same player for like four years now. He's going to get a ton of rebounds. He's going to, you know, finish a lot of shots in the paint. He's not going to do much more than that. But RJ Davis they they have literally surrounded him with role players and it has allowed him to thrive in a really, really special kind of way. He's hitting better than 40% of his three-pointers in the season. That's a career high for him. Uh, as I mentioned, he's just taking a ton of shots and he's being really, really efficient with those shots. And it's turned Car- it's allowed Carolina to focus, to have other guys focus on other things and let him focus on being the player that creates offense for them. I, you know, also with RJ Davis, it, it, feels like you just mentioned Amar Armando Baycott. The year is 2024. It feels like it's been 12 years since we've been, you know, playing Duke basketball and we have to see RJ Davis and Caleb Love. This year is the first year they're in different teams, but it feels like this is, you know, RJ Davis's name that has been, you know, involved with this rivalry for as long as in recent memories we can remember. And, you know, when you think about the pandemic really being like three years ago, he's been around longer than that. It feels like it just feels like he's been around forever but he's gotten steadily better this year than he was last year, especially on the offensive end. And, and like you said, how they use him, I think is a, is a marked difference from what we saw last year. We, we, we talked about Armando Baycott again, nine rebounds a game or ten, almost 10 rebounds a game. He's almost averaging double, double. And he is just the guy that, like you said, he's going to be the guy that grinds it out in the paint. But Jason, there's one guy that also grinds it out in the paint, but also can shoot threes. His name is Harrison Ingram. Tell us about him and why he's so dangerous. Yeah, I'll tell you something, Donald. Uh, Carolina has exceeded expectations this year. I think most folks thought they would be maybe, you know, a top 15 kind of club. Uh, look, last year they were preseason number one, and they fell out of the top 25 and had an awful, awful Like three year. weeks, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this year you can make an argument that this year's team is as good as last year's team was supposed to be. <laughs> and as much as it is R.J. Davis, as much as it is Armando Baycott, I think the big difference, <clears throat> the big difference in this year's team is Harrison Ingram. He went from a guy who couldn't even hit 32% of his three-pointers at Stanford 
to a guy who's hitting 40% in Chapel Hill. Now, I'm not sure he's going to sustain that because he, over his career, he's just not been nearly this good. And crazy stat about him, he's a terrible free throw shooter. Like, mm-hmm. this is just for a guy who's hitting 40% from three, he's hitting just 57% of his free throws, which doesn't, that doesn't match up. So I, I wonder maybe if that 40% from three is a little bit of an illusion and that over the course of the season, he'll drift down, you know, closer to 35 or like, you know, in his career, he's 32%. Hey, no better time than right now to regress to the mean. Yeah, exactly. Revert to the mean now, Harrison, please. <laughs> we love that. Yeah. But I was going to say, to me, the big thing about him has been his rebounding. Get ready for some numbers, man. This is, un- here's his last seven games, by the way, all of them against ACC opponents. His last seven games, 13 rebounds, five of them offensive, 17 rebounds, seven of them offensive, 14 rebounds, 13 rebounds. They played Louisville. Carolina was ahead by 15 points inside of five minutes. I mean, like it was an absolute blowout and Harrison Ingram didn't play as much. He only got four rebounds against Louisville. Previous game of that, 10 rebounds. And then the game before that, 19 rebounds against an NC State. He had five offensive rebounds, 19 total rebounds. In his past seven games, Harrison Ingram is averaging almost 13 rebounds per game. Take out that that blowout to Louisville where, you know, frankly, no one was playing that hard because the game was over very quickly. And he's averaging 14 and a half rebounds per game. I mean, no one, no one expected him to put up these kind of rebounding numbers. And it has allowed Carolina, in my opinion, to do all kinds of things differently because they know that he and Armando Baycott are cleaning up the board. Like they don't even need anybody else to rebound. Those two guys are cleaning up the boards, and it's been those offensive rebounds. I mentioned it, five, seven, five. He's grabbing way too many offensive rebounds. If Duke allows Harrison Ingram to get off, like get like four, five, six, seven offensive rebounds, I don't know how we win the game. When when we were talking with Jay, one thing stood out about, you know, we talked about how they're a great offensive rebounding team and just a rebounding team in general. And that has been the case for UNC for a very long time. This is no exception. And the fact that they have two guys that are averaging almost 10 rebounds per game is something that's not something you see every day. But at the same time, Jay mentioned that, you know, everyone says it's all effort. And he's like, no, there's a lot that goes into a rebound. And that's accurate. I think the fact is these guys, both him and Baycott, have terrific footwork. And I think that's the reason why it's so frustrating to watch them play, especially, you know, when Armando Baycott has played against us, it's so frustrating because he always seems to be in the right place at the right time with the right footwork and the right technique. And then the energy and the effort, he doesn't have to have as much, but he, but he matches whatever opponent he's going up against. And I think that's the key here. We talk about the fact that, you know, we haven't been as good a rebounding team as we were last year, especially on the offensive end. This team needs to figure out a way to be resilient inside the paint when it comes to rebounding. Because if we can limit those two guys to, you know, under 10 rebounds, like you said, they, they you know, Harrison Ingram's going off at a tremendous clip. But if we can limit them to under 10 rebounds and make that rebounding battle, just, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily win the battle. It would be great to do that. But if we can make it close and make it close to even, that's so many more opportunities for Duke to score points. And as you mentioned, we're the better offensive team. We can take advantage of that. Hey, I want to mention two other guys that get a lot of playing time for Carolina that are worth talking about. One is Elliot Cadeau, the freshman, the, the freshman phenom. This is a guy who came in. A lot of people expected him to be a high lottery pick after his one year at Carolina. I'm not so sure. I don't think he's going to, 
I think he may stick around more than one year. Frankly, he has uh, really, really struggled from shooting. Teams lately have been, well, frankly, they've been giving him the Mark Mitchell treatment. <laughs> yeah, from three. Yeah, mm -hmm. they leave him alone out there. Now, look, he can be really dangerous if he gets in the lane. And he's a brilliant passer. I mean, a really brilliant. I mean, you, you got to make sure that he doesn't just roam around and do whatever he wants because he'll find some dude cutting and suddenly Carolina will have a dunk. But you can really leave him alone from outside. He's only hitting 19% on his three-pointers on the year. He hasn't hit a three-pointer since they played Charleston Southern on December 29th. By the way, that three-pointer he hit against Charleston Southern, the only three-pointer he's made since Thanksgiving. Well, Thanksgiving was a long time ago. I feel yeah. like I feel like we've moved on a good bit since then. He's got a grand total of one three-pointer since Thanksgiving. So I think, you know, it's going to be really interesting. I suspect Duke will probably put Jeremy Roach on Elliott Keto. That's sort of how the matchups work out. And size-wise, I think that works pretty well. Roach is an experienced senior and, and will really be able to probably use his body to keep Keto out of the lane. Um, but I'm going to be interested in seeing if they try and use Roach to help out a little bit. Because if there's anybody on this Carolina team that you can slough off on, it is absolutely Elliot Cadeau. And then I wanted to mention Cormac Ryan. Now, Duke fans, I understand. I'm here to help you out if you have Cormac Ryan PTSD. Because in 2021, he had like that ridiculous game against us. He was at Notre Dame. He had that ridiculous game where he went for mm -hmm. 28 points against Duke. And it'd be real easy to go, oh my God, I'm terrified of facing this guy again. But it is worth noting that beside that one game, Cormac Ryan has not been a Duke killer at all. Like in 2022, we played Notre Dame once. He had two points in that game. In 2023, last year, we only played them once. He only had seven points in that game. I'm I'm here to tell you that Cormac Ryan is not a Duke killer, but I'm also here to remind you that one time in 2021, Cormac Ryan just carved us up in the most mean, despicable, horrible way possible to imagine. Now, the thing about Ryan is this year, He's only hitting 30% of his threes. And throughout his career, he's been a little bit better than that. We talk about rever you know, reversion to the mean and all that other kind, of other kind of stuff. I hope it doesn't start in this game because I suspect that by the end of the year, Cormac Ryan will be hitting better than 30% from three. I was going to say, Harrison Ingram, regress to the mean. Cormac Ryan, stay exactly where you are. You're doing great, my friend. Um, I, I think it could be worse. About... It could be worse. He could go worse. I'm, I'm yeah, fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. You can, you know, start do worse. And then then we can talk about what else what else you want to do the rest of the season and your your goals and everything. But I digress. I, I think you, you mentioned the three pointers. I think the one thing about three pointers is we've talked about how they only shoot, you know, they only make about 35%. That's a decent clip. It's not like a tremendously great clip, but it's a decent one. I think the thing to point out is that three guys, there's three main guys who shoot the vast majority of their threes. That's RJ Davis, Cormac Ryan, and Harrison Ingram. As you mentioned, RJ Davis and Harrison Ingram, both shooting over 40%. Cormac Ryan is, is, is around 30%. So you have guys that are going to be taking the bulk of their threes. That means that if you see a Seth Tremble who, yeah, he shoots 47%, but he's only taken 19 attempts. He, those guys are not going to be literally really looking for a three-point shot. It also leads to the fact that you don't want one of those guys to go off. You don't want Harrison Ingram to go off from three. You don't want Elliot Cadeau to start slicing and dicing and, and distributing the ball in the paint and going for points. And you don't need Cormac Ryan to score 10, 12 points and really making it difficult in ourselves. I think the one thing about this Duke team over the last few weeks that has been the, the Achilles heel is that we have made life difficult on ourselves on both offense and defense at many stretches uh, you know, during a game. Things need to come more effortless, and I think against this 
this team, yeah, sure, is going to be a difficult game. But if we can move the ball around and make it where UNC has to react to us and not the other way around, that is going to be the main difference. Who's going to control the tempo really in this game? I think finally you need to look at their bench. We've talked about some bench guys, Seth Tremble, Jalen Withers, uh, Jalen Washington are going to come off the bench, but they don't utilize them that much. Their bench has 24.6% of all of their minutes come for their bench. They're going to be relying heavily on their stars. Of course, RJ Davis, Armando Baycott, Harrison Ingram. Those guys are going to be getting the bulk of the minutes. What does that mean? Get them into foul trouble. Because when they get into foul trouble, a lot of times Hubert Davis has taken them out the game. 18.2% of first half minutes come from guys with two fouls. So yeah, they may keep you know an RJ Davis or Armando Baycott in. They may trust them more. But it may be where they take guys out and have a, a stretch where they're off the court. And that's where, again, the rotations are limited and we can exploit that. Now, to summarize, Jason, I think there's four things that Duke needs to do. I mentioned don't let Harrison Ingram, L.A. Cano, or Cormac Ryan go off. The, if, if R.J. Davis and Armando Baycott go off, you know, one of those two, are, that's fine. We, we've, we've seen that before. We know how to react to that. But don't let a third guy be the one that kills the team. R.J. Davis, you know, again, he's scoring 21 points a game. It'd be great to keep him under his average because, again, I think UNC, more uh, more so this year than last year, is riding him more, right? You're, like you said, you're giving him more usage. You're giving him the ball more. He's being able to take more risks. Um, and if he can stay under his average, that means that they're struggling. The third thing, and it kind of limits it kind of the two blend together, rebounding. Do not let Baycott lead the rebound parade. We just can't let that happen. We can't let Harrison Barnes be the, or I'm sorry, Harrison Barnes, uh, Harrison Ingram be the guy that leads the rebound parade either. And it leads to my fourth limit the second chance points. UNC lives off of that. I think, I, I don't know what the metrics are, but it, it's got to be one of the highest percentages in the country of second chance points compared to, you know, first chance points, if you want to say, for lack of a better term. But if we can limit their second and third and fourth opportunities, again, that goes back to rebounding, that goes back to defense, it goes back to all these things, energy and, and all that, we will be okay. And on our side, intensity. This is I, I don't need to school anybody on intensity for this rivalry. I shouldn't have to school the players on intensity for this rivalry. We have been just absolutely gutted by slow starts on the road. If we can come out hot on the road, and it doesn't have to be super hot, right? We don't have to hit 97. You don't have to start off shooting 90%. But if we can make this a game where at the under 16 media timeout, everyone goes, hey, Duke's here to play. That makes this game even more intense. And that intensity becomes our ally when we are on the road at their house. Because the last thing a team wants to do is have pressure build on them when they're at home. That happens in this rivalry. That's how we took UNC out of the game last year when we were at the Dean Dome. That's how we do it this year as well. My last thing is matchups. And and look, I talked to Jay Billis about this a little bit on our earlier podcast, which I'm sure folks listen to before they listen to this one. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I feel like there's so many interesting matchups in this game. And I just keep on sort of coming back to the two players that I think may be the most indispensable for their teams. It's We talked a lot about RJ Davis, but I sort of feel like Kyle Filipowski and Armando Baycott are the most indispensable players for their team because they do things in the post that no one else in their team is able to do. And both those guys are occasionally susceptible to foul trouble. If Baycott 
or especially Filipowski get in foul trouble, their team their team is in trouble. And if either one of those guys gets badly outplayed by the other one, you know, if if Flip goes for 20 and 14, or if Baycott does the same thing, and and the other guy, you know, struggles to get to more than like 10 or 12 points and gets six rebounds, it's just really difficult to see where either team makes up for that disparity. Disparity. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I go back and forth, you know, on what the most important matchup is in this game, but I, I think I, eventually I settle on that one, and I just feel like, man, there's just got to You cannot get in foul trouble. I worry so much because Flip is lately. It's been happening to him. God, I think that's that that would that would be unfortunate. Jason, you mentioned the lineups and some of the matchups that we have. Just as we close out, I think there's an, an interesting note uh, that hats to my best friend Jeff Sheely. He sent this to me. It comes from CBB Analytics on Twitter, and that you know it kind of chronicles a lot of different metrics out there. But here's one that involves Duke: the lineup of Caleb Foster, Jared McCain, Jeremy Roach, Cal Filipowski, and Mark Mitchell is far and away our best lineup from a plus-minus perspective. They are plus 73 on the year. And the most you know incredible stat about that is that they didn't appear together until the sixth game of the season until Southern Indiana. And that was only for a minute and 16 seconds in that ball game Against Arkansas, that very next game, we only saw it for 20 seconds. And that was you – know, and then in real time, the first game that we saw it was against Georgia Tech. And that was because Tyrese Proctor got hurt in the first minute 16 of the ball game. They have only finished since that lineup has been on the floor. They've only finished one game with a negative plus minus, and that was the Louisville game. But they only played four minutes and four to three seconds together in that game because we we kind of took it away from them towards the end. So I think that's interesting to know that likely that's our starting lineup maybe on on Saturday. I don't know if we replace Jeremy Roach since he's coming back from the ankle injury, but it'll be interesting to see if we see a lot of this lineup because it has been proven so far this year when they are in the ball game. Duke is doing well. Hey man, I'll go for that. That works for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think we'll all, I think we'll all go for anything that makes us do well on Saturday. Exactly. Again, I, I'm not telling you what time it is. I'm not telling you what channel it is because you already know it's Duke UNC. Everybody, wear your Duke blue, the best blue there is out there. Get ready for this game on Saturday. We are going to need everything. And if you're going to the Dean Dome, write us dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We want to know what it's like in there. We will have a full extensive recap sometime this weekend after the Duke UNC game. But until then, that will do it for episode 590 of the Duke Basketball Roundup. He is Jason. I am Donald. Now it's time for the Duke band to play us out and take us home. You know what time it is. Go to hell, Carolina. <laughs> <laughs>